Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Andrew Goldberg joins us for another round of Pandemic Employment Talk. Today we discuss the extension of one of the benefit packages and the WE charity layoffs and, of course, the school situation. Some optimistic news from a Quebec company that says they're moving to phase one in human clinical trials for a vaccine for COVID-19. And a new poll from Ipsos says that many Canadians would be in support of another shutdown of non-essential services if a second wave comes to Canada. What's it all mean? Well, we'll talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's always a pleasure to bring our good friend Andrew Goldberg back into the program. Andrew is an employment lawyer associated at San Fuero to Market LLP. Employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is uh, the webpage you want to go to uh, if you've got some concerns. Andrew, welcome back to the program. How are you doing this week? I'm very well, Bill. How are you doing? Good. Almost on a daily basis now, we get announcements from, uh, in our particular circumstance, the Prime Minister and, and Premier Ford, uh, about changes to going back to work, about assistance for employment, about assistance for businesses. Uh, and, and I know that you get a lot of those phone calls, too, people asking some of the same questions I just brought up here, and how some of these programs actually are going to have uh, any sort of an impact on them at all. Uh, those programs have been extended, which is, again, going to raise some questions about, well, what am I eligible for? What about EI? What about going back to work, etc.? What, what, how do you explain this to people and when, when they're trying to get some clarity as to what they should be doing? <laughs> well, a lot of times uh, there's not much explanation other than a lot of it's just a big wait and see, it, it appears, because at this point you just have to assume things are going to continue to change. You can't assume anything is set in stone. So... Every time I give advice, there's usually a little caveat of, you know, the emergency order is scheduled to end at this date, but, you know, very, you know, it's very likely it could be extended. So don't don't uh, hang your hat on that right now. So in circumstances uh, like the wage subsidy program, let's talk about the federal program for just a second. We know that the government uh, says that uh, they're going to be extending that. Uh, but there was another program that you and I talked about, uh, I guess it was almost a couple of months ago now, uh, and that was about the, uh, the the SEAS program, S-E-W-S program, uh, which is basically a situation where the government kicks in an awful lot of money towards the, an individual's salary. But it was with the expectation, I remember the day the Prime Minister announced this, the expectation was that the employer would still kick in that other 25%. Is that happening all the time? Uh, that's absolutely not happening all the time. So, so you're right. There's essentially two um, main areas of help that the government's provided. One is the CERB benefit. Yeah. which, uh, you know, most of the listeners will know very well about. You, you get $2,000 every four weeks, and you're essentially, you know, put on, a, most of these people are on a layoff right now, a temporary layoff. The The other program is a wage subsidy, where, where you're right, where the government has dished up quite a bit of money to employers to pay their employees, their workforce, um, up to 75% of their wages, uh, up to a cap, I believe it's 800 and. Forty-seven dollars, or some, somewhere around there, about eight hundred and fifty dollars a week. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're one hundred percent right. Most employers are not paying that other twenty-five percent; they're simply paying the seventy-five percent. A lot of employers aren't even availing themselves of the program at all because, you know, it's it's not all employers qualify for various reasons. Uh, you know, to qualify as it stands, you need to demonstrate that your revenues have declined by certain values and some employers don't meet those exact thresholds. And another issue is the um, subsidy, the amount that they get from the government is, is a taxable amount, so they have to pay tax on it. And a lot of employers would rather their, their workforce go off on the CERB benefit, get their 2000 directly from the government, and uh, then they don't have to worry about paying tax on the wage subsidy amount. So certainly, yeah, there are employers that are paying you know, just 75% of their wages to the employees based on the subsidy. And on the other hand, a lot of them are just saying, forget it, we're not going to apply for this at all and go get your CERB and do it on your own and we'll call you back uh, when we can. Is there any trepidation about, uh, you know, who's going to qualify and, and, and what the ramifications might be? Do you remember when they announced all this stuff? They just said, look, it, just apply, okay? Uh, we'll sort through this later if we're going to find people that are maybe ripping off the system, etc. Well, that, remember about three weeks ago, they said, oh, we're going to start that now. Uh, and we're going to do a, a more intense evaluation on that. Is Has that made some people shy away from trying to get involved in this at all? Well, that, 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 you're right. That pertains to the CERB benefit. Yeah. So that's the one that people apply for on their own once they, you know, in most cases have been temporarily laid off and they're at home and they're not working. Um, so, so that's, 
you're right when it comes to that. It was very easy to get at the beginning. It's still pretty easy to get. But, uh, you know, the government has indicated, look, if you, if you don't qualify and you've received it, expect to pay it back and then some. With respect to the wage subsidy, um, which is essentially the employer getting money from the government directly to pay the workforce while they're actually still working uh, to help them out with their with their payroll, um, that's harder to get. You have to meet eligibility criteria. Uh, and that's actually part of the reason why employers are not pursuing it uh, as often as one might have thought, um, simply because it, it is a little more cumbersome to apply for and uh, ultimately receive the wage subsidy. So uh, something that the Prime Minister Trudeau and, and uh, the federal government were discussing um, kind of at a high level was finding ways to make the eligibility rules uh, kind of loosen them up for employers so that they can get those funds to start paying their employees to come back to work. I mean, I think the government's at the point where they're pretty much saying, you know, we would much prefer giving money to employers and have them continue to employ their workforce than give money to employees directly to sit at home and not work at all. We might as well get the economy boosted by having jobs in place and people working. So they're trying to... um, lighten up the eligibility for the wage subsidy to get people back to work. Okay, but I want to follow through on the scenario that you just talked about a couple of seconds ago there. Uh, suppose my employer, you know, is, is involved in the program, they decided to go down that road. Uh, and if I'm one of these employees and I find out that, hey, they're only paying 75%, which, which is really the money from the government, they're not going to pay the other 25 uh, and, you know, and I'm sure they're going to come up with an excuse. Well, come on, you know, business is bad, sales are down, whatever it is. So that's that's your salary now. That's seventy five percent. I'm not going to contribute to it at all. Uh, I, as an employee, Andrew, I got a problem with that. Hey, what what what, what, cho- what choices do I have? Well, you're, you have a couple of choices. I mean, as you as you should, right? So the even still, even a seventy five percent of wages, that's up to a maximum of eight hundred and forty seven dollars. So you could they could be covering that. You could be earning. Uh, you know, a heck of a lot more, even if they did cut your wage by 25%. I mean, you do have pretty much one of two options. Option one is you can work with, if you, you know, if you enjoy your job, if you certainly appreciate that the company is in bad shape and you're an employee, your pay has been cut 25%, then you can go to your employer and explain, look, I'm not happy with this, but to help the business, I will accept this. However, you know, we need to make it clear that this is only temporary and at such and such point in the future, I expect to be repaid. You could also canvas the possibility of, uh, as I just said, a repayment as opposed to um, like a pay deferral. So that's something you work out. If you say, look, you're not doing well right now, cut my pay by 25%, but sometime in 2021, you know, I want my salary to increase to reflect the cut I've taken now. So you, you as an individual can work with your employer. It depends obviously on your relationship and it depends what you want. But on the other hand, if that's not feasible, you as an employee, if your pay is cut that significantly, can pursue a claim for constructive dismissal. You could say, employer, you had no right to cut my pay um, by such a significant amount, and I'm going to treat my employment as being terminated, and I want my severance package. And you can see an employment lawyer, and um, you, with the assistance of that lawyer, pursue a, a severance uh, from the employer. Uh, and the caveat to this whole thing, I and mean, you mentioned this, I think, in last week's program, uh, if you're going to sit down and try to work out a deal with your employer, uh, get it in writing. Always a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Everything in writing, um, you know, I always recommend it. It's a great point. Everything should be in an email. Um, you know, you just, you want, you want to, everything you do, you want, you want to make it, you know, do you want to appreciate, okay, look, if someone was on the outside looking in, how would they perceive what is going on here, right? So um, when push comes to shove and, you know, if things don't work out the way you want and you get into a, you know, a little legal dispute or there's a disagreement at the end of the day, um, if the things are in writing, you can't dispute what's going on there. So get it in writing, absolutely. 
this changes almost, I was going to say, on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. Uh, we just heard yesterday, of course, that uh, Pearson Airport's just laid off a whole bunch of people because not too many people are flying these days. So there's more and more people that are going to find themselves in this conundrum and, and looking for some advice and as to how to handle this. You know, how do you treat that layoff? You know, am I going to be able to come back to work? You know, when are people going to start flying again? You know, when is it going to be safe again? So there's an awful lot of uncertainty going on out here. The other one that made the news, of course, uh, was uh, the WE charity. Now, I'm not going to ask you to get into the, the weeds politically on this, Andrew, but, uh, you know, that that's for another day with the... Uh, but we want to talk about the implications of that. And we found out that after we backed away from uh, working this program that uh, the government thought they were going to work, uh, an awful lot of people from we got laid off. Now, that has charitable status. Does that change anything at all when it comes to employee relations and what their rights might be? Well, with respect to being let go, it does not change their severance entitlements. They're still, um, as you know, the real question more than anything is, so they let go, my understanding is approximately 450 or so workers that were, you know, originally scheduled to work on the project. A lot of these workers were either subject to a fixed term contract, which pretty much just means, you know, we're hiring you for a finite period of time. I mean, many listeners right now, um, there's no end date for their contract. That's called an indefinite duration. So you're just hired. And until you resign or until you're let go, you'll continue to work for the company you work for. But a lot of these individuals for uh, we, they're on fixed term contracts. So it says, you know, we'll hire you effective June 30th, uh, 2020 to August 31st, uh, 2021. And that's the term. And at the end of this contract, your work, your contract is over and, and you don't work for us anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. A second group of people they hired were were designated as independent contractors, which means, you know, they're ostensibly, according to the company, they're not even employees at all. They're independent contractors. So the question is, you know, what kind of severance are these people entitled to for being let go? And uh, if you want to get into it a bit, I'm happy to, because these are two common things that come up all the time. So the first one is a fixed-term contract. So fixed-term contracts are very interesting because the law has shown time and time again that if you are terminated partway through a fixed-term contract, then unless there's very, very good language within that contract limiting your severance entitlements, and that's very rare these days, most language is absolutely unenforceable. So what that means is if you're let go partway through a fixed-term contract, you're owed the payment for the balance of the contract, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that entitlement is much, much greater than if you just received your normal severance, because <clears throat> you could theoretically work two months into a year of a fixed-term contract, and if they let you go, that means they owe you 10 more months. But if you had a regular employment of indefinite duration, you were, you were simply let go after two months, um, your severance wouldn't even be close to 10 months' pay, right? So people under a fixed-term contract can be owed a great deal of money if they're let go, and it's it's vital that these people speak to a, a lawyer about what their severance entitlements might be in, in that scenario because you could get a heck of a lot more than you're probably being offered. And then with respect to independent contractors, a lot of people are called independent contractors, but, but they're absolutely not independent contractors. So many of these people, you know, they're called an independent contractor, but they still work 40 hours a week for the company and they still get a regular paycheck. It just might be paid as a you know, through an invoice with HST, but that doesn't change anything. That doesn't mean you're not an employee at all. So um, a lot of these independent contractors are certainly would be considered an employee at law, regardless of what they're titled in their contract. And once again, these people would also be owed a severance. So uh, most of the people that we uh, charity laid off and let go were either fixed term uh, contract employees or were, were called independent contractors. Both Both types of people could be owed um, significant money, and uh, even outside of this we charity context, if, if uh, you're an individual who is let go with a fixed term or in, or as an independent contractor, um, it's certainly something you want to discuss with the lawyer before agreeing to any severance if one's being offered to you. 
with uh, employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg. I got a few minutes left here. I wanted to get into the uh, the teaching school thing because, uh, as we say, boards of education across the province now are starting to develop plans for going back to school, and there are a number of different scenarios that are being proposed. And nothing's carved in stone yet, but one of them is that the students uh, would probably do some online learning, some virtual learning, but a couple of days in the classroom, uh, which may sound the, the best thing to do from a caution standpoint to do with COVID-19. But if you're a parent of that child uh, and you're going back to work right now, uh, who's going to look after that child for the two or three days per week that they're not there? Do you do you go to your employer and say, look, you're going to have to revamp my work schedule. I, I'm going to have to work from home for those two, two or three days because we just have, there's no daycare out there right now. How do, how do you how do you handle something like that? I know it's an excellent question, and and I keep thinking the only solution maybe is they they got to improve the artificial intelligence in the world, and we'll have robot robot nannies and babysitters one day maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way ever, anyone's ever going to get back to work here. But you're right. I mean, the balancing act with respect to return to school and, you know, health, mitigating health risks, but also creating, you know, a consistent schedule for parents whereby they can tell their employer, hey, you know, my kid's back at school five days a week so I can work again. It's incredibly difficult because you look you know, I'm not a, an expert in, in all things, far from it. Um, but, you know, you look at how well things are going in Canada with respect to our COVID numbers compared to our neighbors down south. And you've got to think, OK, we're doing something right here. Right. But on the other hand, you have these parents and a lot of the time it's, it's women who when they don't have consistent consistency with respect to when is my child going to be at school? They can't work because they they're employed. It's it's impossible to figure out what days you can be there, what days you can't. An employer has to accommodate you. I mean, if you have childcare obligations, you have to be accommodated. But that accommodation only can go so far. So if you just have this, you know, employers have to do their best to give you flexible schedules, allow you to work from home, whatever they can do, they have to do. But there's going to be some instances if you have, you know, a, a numerous employees that have no idea when they can be at work, when they can't. It, it becomes very difficult for employers, employees. Um, so it, it's a challenge. So I know that there's a lot of people out there pushing for a five-day in-class week because these people just simply want to get back to work and they can't afford to remain home or they can't afford to work part-time hours or reduced hours to, to have that flexibility to be at home with their children. Uh, when their children aren't at school, right? So it's it's very, very challenging. And I appreciate, it. you know, no one's really to blame, I don't think, necessarily. It's just this is what the, the cards were dealt right now. This is the hand we're dealt, and we just have to try to find a way to balance everything um, to figure it out here. But it's a struggle. But if I'm one of those parents and and, uh, and I just say, look, this is just not tenable. I can't I can't do this and, and look after my child at the same time. Uh, you're going to have to do this, or I, I I just can't go back to work yet. Uh, can I get fired for that? No, you absolutely cannot get fired for that, right? So because uh, ch- childcare obligations are protected under the Human Rights Code if fam- under family status, but you know <laughs> that said, you do have an obligation to look to see if there are any arrangements you can make. So you have to exhaust all avenues on your end to say, okay, can I get my child um, some some care and, and someone to look after him or her or them uh, so that I can return to work? Uh, if, if the answer is no and you have no choice but to be home, you cannot be fired for that without that being a, a human rights violation and also um, you'd be entitled to your severance. I mean, the question is, is your employer going to accommodate you? Your employer should try to make every effort possible to let you work from home or work flexible hours or change your hours. Whatever that they can do, they should do it. If that's somehow impossible, um, then you should be entitled to, you know, remain on a leave of absence and, you know, collect, uh, I, I suppose, the CERB benefit and, and hope that, uh, that these kids get back into school one day soon. Always great advice. Uh, and if you find yourself in one of these situations, uh, the, the webpage you want to go to is employmentlawyer.ca, or you can get a hold of Andrew. At, uh, he's an associate, of course, at San Fruo to Mark and LLP. Uh, stay well, my friend. We'll uh, talk again next week. Appreciate the time today. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Andrew Goldberg. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about a vaccine. And, and obviously, ever since this thing started to ravage the world, 
the talk has been, well, we need to develop a vaccine for COVID-19. And there are many, many, many companies around the world that are working on that right now. Uh, one of them is in uh, Quebec, and uh, they've just started clinical trials. But if you think this is going to lead us to the idea that a vaccine is imminent and that all our COVID problems are going to be over, uh, you better think again. Uh, joining us to talk about this uh, is Ahmad Fiaris Khalid, who is a medical doctor and health policy expert. Uh, doctor, great to have you back on the program. How are you keeping these days? Very well, thank you for asking. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Just, you know, staying at home seems to be it. You know, just, <laughs> that's. Uh, but you know, we like a lot of other people though uh, are getting to the point where we say, "Do I really need to do this?" And I guess the short answer is, "Yeah, we do, don't we?" I mean, the uh, the face masks, the social isolation, the social distancing, especially. Uh, I notice an awful lot of people just say, "Ah, yeah," but we're over the worst of this. Uh, that, that's wishful thinking, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you look at evidence overall, we know that it's a combination of more than one thing. So the questions we ask ourselves every single day, whether we should wear a face mask or continue to do so, continue to social distance or physical distance, uh, whether it's necessary or not, the evidence has come now to say that it's absolutely necessary. And the combination of more than one of those interventions is exceptionally important for us to get ahead of this pandemic. And what I mean by that is that it's not just enough to have face masks, but it's also important to wear a face mask, to practice safe hand hygiene and social distance as much as possible at all times. Which is uh, the message that many of us, including yourself, have been talking about from day one. And uh, it's interesting to see that uh, some of the uh, higher profile folks in uh, the American medical profession, uh, Dr. Redfield, and of course, Dr. Fauci, are, are really hammering away at that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm sure you saw the, the comment from Dr. Redfield the other day, doctor, that uh, said that if everybody in America wore a mask in four to six weeks, we could probably knock this virus out. I, that, I'm not so sure how realistic that is, but I, I, it does go to the idea that this is very, very important for us to be doing right now. Absolutely, Bill. And I think it goes to show that the U.S. is desperate for uh, people to stick to their public health interventions. I mean, look, uh, here in Canada, the reason why we've been doing well, and now the world is looking at us as an example of a country that went through a progressive, slow reopening of things, uh, that's been able to sort of decrease our numbers of COVID-19 to get ahead of this pandemic, is because we've been listening to our experts. We've been listening to our public health experts in the field who are telling us, please continue to practice those measures. They work. Uh, and this is why we are where we are today. I mean, people look at the, you know, the reopening. We're in phase three now across the, most of the province and say, you know, it wasn't as big of a deal. But the reason why COVID-19 doesn't seem as big of a deal to many here in Canada is because the majority of us have followed the rules and did so very well. How can you develop a vaccine? And, and there are some very dedicated people around the world trying to do this right now. But when we're still finding out about COVID-19, I mean, even, you know, just last week, of course, was the possibility that this is an airborne virus. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, who knew about that four months ago? Uh, it's, it's, this is kind of like trying to pin jello to the wall, isn't it? Because it's, it's very movable target. And it's got to be very difficult for, for the, the researchers that are doing this to try to nail down exactly what this is and what needs to be done to, to develop a vaccine. Precisely, Bill. I think that vaccine development is a very complex and long process. Uh, scientifically, it takes about uh, at minimum of years duration for you to actually develop the vaccine, test trial it on a number of populations. Currently, the test trials on vaccines, there's two candidates in the U.S. There's a couple of candidates here in Canada. Quebec, as you mentioned earlier in the show, is one of them. But there's also the vaccine coming out of Oxford University in the U.K. Uh, all very promising, uh, but a lot of them, the majority, except the one in Quebec, have been testing younger uh, volunteers. And by that, I mean people less than the age of 30. Uh, that's a bit of a problem because we really need to be testing the vaccine on uh, older age uh, people and people with chronic conditions that we know are at a higher risk of developing complications from COVID-19. The point to make there is that 18 months for a vaccine development is literally unheard of and something that is a race against time. Uh, and the point to make here from all the infectious disease experts are reiterating over and over again is that yet we can be optimistic that we're moving at a very fast speed but we also have to be realistic, which is that it will take some time for us to see a vaccine available for you and I through our family doctor or shopper's dog park, for example. Yeah, the, uh, the CEO of the company that's developing the one in Quebec right now, uh, Medicado, uh, Mr. Clark, uh, has suggested that, look, if this is going to take a long, long time, 
Uh, he says, unless it's a miracle, uh, the first round's not going to be that effective, and it's not going to be perfect. Undergo development, uh, probably years, he says, before we come up with the right vaccine. Uh, maybe you could walk us through the, the stages. I mean, you just mentioned, of course, that they're, they're starting to do clinical trials. Uh, but there has to be a period of time, I would think, doctor, for that trial to take place, then some assessment of that. And my understanding from the, the stuff I've read lately is that even after you've done that, you still have to wait a little while to make sure that there are no, you know, after effects that, uh, that heretofore had not been noticed. Yeah, so that's it. So I would like to summarize the phases of vaccine development into sort of uh, about six broad stages. I mean, okay. uh, you can get very, very minute into the details. But first of all, it's an exploratory phase. And all that is, is that learning about this vaccine. How does it affect people? Uh, what is the manifestations of it? Can we get a version of the vac- virus itself that we can sort of build the vaccine to combat it? So that's the exploratory phase. And then you do preclinical, and that's in the laboratory. So we're seeing that across the world, Countries who have very innovative labs are trying to take that virus, COVID-19 specifically, and figure out how do you build an immune response to it. That's all you're doing there is that you're building an Im- a body's immune response to it. And the research over and over again show us that, that to, build, to build that immunity, you need to build that vaccine. Uh, then third stage, just briefly speaking, is the clinical development. So at that point, you try to get approvals to see if you can actually test trial it on volunteers, which is where we are right now. Uh, and then finally, sorry, the, the next stage will be regulatory and review process. Canada specifically, we're very uh, stringent on how, what we make available in our, in our uh, system, right? So we don't just haphazardly approve anything. We actually go Canada, Health Canada goes through an extremely stringent process before things get into place. And that's exactly what the CEO of Montreal was trying to talk about, is that for us Canadians, we're not going to see this you know, vaccine being available tomorrow or in the next 12 months. It will go through many testing. And then there is the issue of manufacturing. Can you supply enough of that vaccine to cover the entire population? We've been hearing reports of countries stockpiling already, so making deals and arrangements with those pharmaceutical companies to ensure that their population is covered. And then finally, there's quality control, which is the point that all the infectious disease experts have been saying, is that we need to test trial this over a long period of time to ensure that there are no side effects. So the point there is that, yes, please be optimistic. We're all very hopeful that this vaccine will soon be available and that we can put an end to COVID-19 pandemic but that we need to just be realistic with our time frame. We are, are a fast food society. We want answers to our problems now, right this minute. We don't like to wait for anything. And uh, I, I get the sense, doctor, we're doing the same sort of thing with this vaccine, that we figure that when they finally develop this, okay, maybe it's going to take 18 months, but I'm going to get that shot and I'm good to go. And COVID-19 will be just like polio. We'll all forget about this. But what I'm hearing from a lot of the people that are involved in this research is that, look, it may not even solve this. It may it may only be part of the solution. And I guess one of the best comparators I saw was, well, we have a flu vaccine, but people still get the flu. Uh, they may not get certain strains, but, I mean, it's still out there. So we're, there's no guarantee here that this is going to work and, and be 100% effective, is there? From a health policy perspective, absolutely. So that the point there to make is that vaccinations are only as effective as a policy if the majority get them. Uh, and so by that, I mean a herd immunity. We really need to be make sure that we raise the awareness. So I feel like this time is a very good time for uh, to raise the awareness among our population about the benefits of vaccines, that they do work, that vaccines have saved billions of lives around the world. Uh, and you will always have the countermeasures bill, people saying that they don't believe in vaccines or that vaccines can have detrimental side effects which the evidence has shown over and over again not to be true. We know that vaccines work. This is why they go through a stringent, long process to make sure they work. Uh, And so I think that we should capitalize on this window of opportunity before we actually have the vaccine available to try to educate the public about the benefits of vaccination so that we don't fall into the same trap with the flu vaccine or other vaccines where where a good number of uh, people in our population are not really very strong advocates for it. Well, and for that reason, because I hear those arguments, doctor, when we talk about vaccination, and by the way, I'm a big supporter of it, and we've tried to get that message across as, as often as we could. But to use the example of the flu vaccine, a lot of people that say, well, we don't do it anymore because it's not that effective anyway. I still get sick. Uh, it's, it is effective, but it's, it's certain strains. I mean, it's, uh, you know, as, as we've talked about, the flu vaccine tries to identify two or three different strains and try to, to build up antibodies against that sort of thing. But there's a lot going on out there. But to suggest that, well, it doesn't work as effectively as I want it to, so I'm not going to do it, is, is a rather naive approach. 
Absolutely, it's an eBay approach. And, and, and the vaccines, when you develop a flu vaccine, they develop it based on the strains that they think is most common this coming winter season. So just because you didn't get that strain and got sick doesn't mean that the vaccine didn't work. It's protecting you against a certain strain that we think will be the most harmful or the most popular or common uh, for that season. So, uh, But COVID-19, I think, will be a little bit different than the flu vaccine. And this is also a speculation because we still don't know exactly the specificity of that vaccine. But it will be specific for COVID-19. So as far as I know and from the research that's available, we haven't really seen different strains of COVID-19. And that might change. The virus might mutate over the years. And we would need to update the vaccine, as we would like to call it. But for the time being, whatever vaccine will be available for COVID-19 will probably be very specific to the virus that we currently have in our population and therefore will be very effective to deal with it. And the time frame, as we say, we need to be realistic about. I know that uh, the, the guy in the White House there keeps talking about one by the end of the year. And I, I, I'm not even going to try to lend any credibility to what he's saying there. Uh, but we're still some ways away. And, and there's the, the idea about, you know, will it be effective? Uh, if, in fact, they do develop a vaccine that they think is going to be effective, do you get an annual shot or does one shot uh, build up the immunities? Uh, we don't know any of this stuff, do we? Well, currently, the clinical trials for some of the vaccines, especially the ones going in the state, is one shot per every month. So you get two doses, uh, one shot per month. So like you get one now, you wait another month, you get another one. So that's for the clinical trials, and that could change depending on it. So you're right. Like, we don't know what that is. But I think the message here today is that this is hopeful news, that the vaccine is, is sort of we're moving really, really fast. I think that's the message loud and clear is that we're bypassing uh, processes carefully that are haphazardly, that it will take time. But in the meantime, I think we all need to continue practicing uh, social distancing, face masks, and safe hand hygiene. And quite frankly, I, I suppose that, and I speculate that even when the vaccine does become available in our market, we probably will be continuing to urge for face masks, uh, safe hand hygiene, which should have been the case beforehand, uh, and social distancing. I don't think those measures are here to stay to, uh, to some extent, to some extent. I saw an interview with a doctor, I think it was from Chicago. I've been watching so many news stations about this over the last little while, doctor. That's why we're always appreciative of you taking some time to try to explain some of this stuff to us. Uh, that was looking into one area of research that I had not heard of before, and that's how long the virus lives in the body. Even if, if you were tested and found to be positive, uh, whether you're asymptomatic or not, or maybe you went through hell, as some people have explained with, uh, with COVID-19, uh, does it stay in the body after that? Because they've done some autopsies on some people that sadly have passed away, and they found it in many other organs. It's not just respiratory or gastrointestinal. They found it in, in, in many of the other organs living in there, too. It's, it, and he was drawing the analogy, I guess, of, uh, well, the shingles vaccine, which, you know, if you've had chickenpox, that, that, vac- that, that virus is with you. Uh, and and can if you don't get you know vaccinated against shingles it can rear its ugly head and that's something you wouldn't want to wish on anybody we don't know that about covid-19 yet do we no we don't and you know as much as we want to think that we've had covid-19 for a very long time it surely feels sometimes that we've been living in this covid time for as long as i can remember it's still a new virus right so like it only came to service in december we're not even a year into this uh, and so we were learning. We're continuously to learn. My job at Evidence Aid, uh, an organization that reviews all the evidence that come out of COVID-19. And let me tell you, right now we're looking at more than a thousand studies per week, if not more, on COVID-19. The amount of research and knowledge and development and learning that's going on with this virus is incredible and never been seen before. Uh, and overwhelming, quite frankly, the amount of knowledge out there now on COVID-19. And we're trying to decipher through it to figure out what's reliable and what's valid. And to your question about the vaccine living in the body for a long time, frankly speaking, there are reports on that. There is some research on that. It's not conclusive. We're still trying to figure that out. Well, uh, you better get back to work. <laughs> uh, you got a, you got a lot of reading to do, Doctor. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on here. I know how busy you are, and uh, every time we get questions like this, we want to call on experts like yourself to try to add some clarity to what's going on. Thank you so much for this today, Doctor. Of course, very happy to speak to you. Have a good day. Take care. Dr. Ahmad Khalid, of course, uh, medical officer, policy health expert, uh, working as many, many thousands of other people in the medical profession are to try to find that vaccine. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Global News and uh, Ipsos teamed up to uh, get a national poll about how we as Canadians are feeling about COVID-19 and uh, what may be happening in the future. The survey conducted by Ipsos uh, for Global News uh, between July 8th and 10th found 77% of Canadians anticipate there will be a second wave of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, amazingly, also, 83% of Canadians said that, well, if that second wave becomes really bad again, they support the idea of shutting down non-essential businesses in the economy. That's a little weird. Uh, and, and touched on a number of different things as well. Uh, Daryl Burke from Ipsos, uh, Ipsos rather, explained exactly where our minds seem to be and where our head's at right now with COVID-19. Here's what he had to say. And if anything has really come out of this entire process, it's the degree to which science now rules our lives. Can you imagine any other, you know, say, for example, a religion or a political leader or whatever, causing the entire world to shut down nearly instantaneously? It's never happened before. But science says that we need to shut down in order to preserve human health and to eradicate the coronavirus. And countries all over the world, regardless of what the nature of their government is, for the most part, have complied. For the most part. Uh, there are exceptions. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, the United States. But anyway, uh, let's, let's talk about what's going to be happening and, and the impact that it could have. And especially from the economic standpoint, because we're not out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination with the first wave yet. And uh, it's had some serious impacts on, on the economy. Joining us to talk about this, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Degree School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Marvin, hope you're doing well today. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be with you. Good. Thank you so much for the time today. Are you surprised at the, at the numbers here? These Like 77% say we're going to get the second wave. 83% say, look, if it was like this last one, shut them down again. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm not completely surprised. And, and rather than saying that people... Uh, are simply trust science. I'm a little worried that they have blind faith in science. Uh, for instance, this idea of a second wave, I think what's fueling that is watching the United States. But the United States is not on a second wave. This is still the first wave. They didn't properly handle their first bout of COVID-19, and thus it never really went away, and, and in fact it has now gotten worse than it was before. For Canada to get a second wave, if we do this right, if we shut this disease down, the only way for it to come back is for it to be reintroduced. It will not spontaneously reappear. It's not like it's gone into hibernation and then one day says, oh, look, they've all gone to sleep. Let's come on out and go at them again. It has to be reintroduced. And I think the lesson here is uh, for our governments, what can we do to make sure a second round of that disease is not reintroduced? You've seen part of that. That is the extension of the border closure with the United States to August 21st. But I think whenever we do open the border, and it's inevitable, we have to open the border to non-essential travel, how do we handle people as they come back and forth? Um, we, in, back in February and March, we, we did have some quarantining, but it was self-quarantine. We simply trust you. Many people didn't do it well, didn't do it correctly. Uh, I'm not sure if there was a second wave we'd have to shut down, but I bet we would handle people traveling a lot differently than we did the first time. We uh, we I don't want to say got lucky because uh, there was some compliance in, in you know in those early days. I mean we tripped and fell a few times. I think everybody in the world did. And we saw that, but uh, as we learned from other jurisdictions, but uh, but you're you're absolutely right. I mean the medical experts uh, will tell us that look at the only way we're actually going to be able to say okay we're safe now is if there is a vaccine, and that's as we just talked about in the last segment not going to happen anytime soon. So we have to start and continue to do I guess the sorts of things we've been doing, which is face masks and physical distancing and things of that nature, and, of course, hand hygiene, which is the stuff they told us about back in February when this started to rear its ugly head. But we've become complacent. I think maybe that's one of the reasons some people are thinking, well, it's probably going to happen again then. Yeah, I, again, I'm, I'm just not sure. It's a bit like a, a car going down the road and, and steering left for a while and then suddenly steering right for a while. There's got to be a middle ground in here. Let me give you another example that worries me a little about this. When is it safe for us to totally reopen and go back to the old normal? Right now in Canada, 99.9% .9 of Canadians do not have COVID. They do not have COVID. They're not suffering from COVID. 99.9%. Um, when that gets to 99.95, is that okay? 99.99? Or is our benchmark zero? We can't have any cases whatsoever before we reopen. We don't do that for anything else. You know, seasonal flu, and I'm not at all suggesting that COVID-19 is the same as seasonal flu, but seasonal flu 
kills thousands of people every year, and we don't shut down for that. We just find a way to march on and, and work through all of this. Even a vaccine is a bit of a false endpoint because we have no mandatory vaccination rules in Canada. We do have some requirements for children entering a school system, in particular things like uh, rubella, measles, but um, that's only in Ontario and Quebec and in Manitoba. Seven provinces have no requirements for vaccinations before children enter school. So a vaccine, is like having the flu vaccine or the shingles vaccine, it's good to have, but we don't, we don't mandate anybody to take it. So I do worry that at some point we've done such a good job of invoking compliance, perhaps scaring people into compliance, when do we say to people, it's okay to come out of hibernation and go back? Uh, I, I just saw another poll recently that asked people, are we ready? I think the answer is yes. I think when you've got 99.9% of the population COVID-free, we should be able to get closer back to normal. But people were saying 82% of people said, no, we're not ready. Stay, stay locked up. And so this, again, that kind of blind faith or blind fear that we created, we've been so good on the one side, and America maybe is reinforcing that fear. But at some point, we have to come back to something in the normal. Our government cannot afford to run a $343 billion deficit every year for the next two or three years. I'm not even sure they can afford to do it a second time. I, and I don't disagree with that economic forecast. I mean, you know, we've, we've got a big hole to dig ourselves out of at some point. But the other element to this is when you look at places like, well, Florida, California, Texas, that's, that kind of took that attitude and said, you know what, let's just keep doing this. Look at the spikes they're having. I mean, this is as bad as it was in March for, for some of these jurisdictions. And, and I, I'm being a little nervous about that. So when you see this and figure, okay, when you throw caution to the wind yep. and just say, let's go back to the way things were nine, ten months ago, look what happens. Right. I, I do think the difference is that they never wrestled it to the ground the way we have in Canada. And thus, when they reopened, they just reopened it too early. It isn't that they shouldn't have reopened. They reopened it too early. They needed to wait until they get to a better spot. And so we're watching Doug Ford in, uh, in Ontario uh, going through measures. Uh, we're not yet in what I'll call Phase 3A. Phase 3A is when restaurants can open for indoor meals and up to 50 people. 3B is when you can open at whatever your regular capacity is. And I'm even going to invoke a stage four. That's when we can have things like the Hamilton Tiger Cats play football with a, a full stadium or have the uh, Bulldogs play with a full arena. We're not there yet. And, and God bless, you know, so far, every attempt we've had to reopen has not invoked more of the disease. We've done it right. Florida, Texas, California did not do it right but we do have to get back, and I do, I do want to stress that. Living locked up, living in fear, uh, I don't mind wearing a mask for the moment, but I don't want that to be the new normal for whatever number of years I've got left on this planet. I, I want to go back, and, and I think uh, at some point there is a risk to living. It's a tiny risk every day, but there's a tiny risk. At some point we've got to get comfortable enough to go back doing that. Well, for that to happen... I, I think, and look at the examples down in the states that we've just referenced. Uh, what we need to do is is follow the same advice that uh, these gays, these doctors, the, the Fauci's and, and Redfields and and Dr. Tan up on this side of the border have been telling us since day one. Yep. And, and they always told us, Marvin, and you know that listen, it's peaking now, and this is terrible. Remember the phrase that that's going to be one of the key phrases when we look back at the year 2020: flatten the curve. Uh, well, and then the, doc the experts said, but before we can start going back to that normal, you can't just flatten it. He says you have to see steady reductions for a period of time. Nobody did that. They just got tired of this and said, hey, we've had a couple of weeks where it's not really getting bad. Okay, let's just do it. Uh, and, and so we didn't follow that advice. And now they're doing the same thing down in the States where the Center for Disease Control had certain standards and say, this is what has to be happening if you're going to reopen schools. And the president, and now the CDC guy himself, is simply saying, well, they were probably too stringent. In other words, we, we modify the, the very regulations that we're supposed to be living by, and we pay the consequence for it. Do we have the physical and mental discipline to safely say, okay, let's stick with it. Let's wait until there are three, four weeks of, of steady declines in the number of, of new cases. Then we can start to do this. Well, I was part of a panel discussion on Monday night with some people, and in fact, the Canadian mentality is much better than the American mentality. Oh, sure. Yeah. We, we tend to 
listen to experts, we tend to follow the rules, and, and in Canada, we've done a much better job. Just to contrast it, it was in early April, early April, that parts of Texas and Florida, the governors there announced they were reopening well before they'd had four weeks of anything. They may have had one week of something. Uh, so, you know, certainly America got it wrong. Canada's been getting it right across the board. And and I think we, we, you just look at the numbers. An old rule of thumb when you compare the United States to Canada is a one to ten rule. There's ten times as many people in the state. So if you look at the number of COVID cases, okay, if Canada's got a hundred thousand, the United States should have a million. Wait a minute, they don't have a million. They have three and a half million. Clearly, they're not doing something right, and clearly we are doing something correct on our side of the border. All I'm saying is this poll that has taken, and it's a great poll, it really does capture the, the public view and the public sentiment uh, quite correctly, I think, at the moment. But what I just worry about is um, we could get a little too comfortable uh, uh, staying at home and staying away from one another and, and what have you. Um, at, at this moment, you know, we're talking about schools. Are schools going to reopen in September? God bless the school board. You probably saw a story in the paper today. They had a 42-page document, yeah. <laughs> three different scenarios under reopening. Well, at some point, we've got to do something. Are we going to have students at home? Are we, is everyone going to have to stay at home to raise their children through video schooling? Or are we going to have face-to-face? -face? I don't know. I think, again, that's eight weeks from now. We've got some more time to deal with this disease. But I think the model we had where school, or excuse me, where students went to school and were taught by students, by teachers in a classroom, I don't think that's a bad model. How can we get back to that? And it just changes the way you phrase the problem now. Rather than saying, how do I stay at home and isolate? The other one is, well, how do I get back to normal? What are the precautions I can take? Mandatory masking, which is actually a violation of your civil liberties, we are prepared to do if that is the cost to get back to that uh, old normal. Well, and there are people in other parts of the world that have been doing it for the longest time. I'm sure we've all seen pictures of uh, a number of Asian communities uh, with the flu virus, and a lot of them wear face masks. Even even in our neighborhood in the West End of Hamilton, uh, Marvin, you know, there were obviously a lot of international students uh, over Columbia College, and, and I see them walking by the radio station there at Maine and Longwood. Many of them are wearing masks long before COVID came along uh, because of concerns with respiratory problems. And so, so I guess it's a mindset. But it, the overriding question, and you and I talked about this way back in the beginning, of this was what about consumer confidence do you feel comfortable i mean phase three means movie theaters can open up do you want to sit in a crowded theater now would you feel comfortable being able to do that would you get on an airplane now because they're, they're going to start selling the middle seat are you comfortable with that i think the answer most canadians are going to say is no you're absolutely right most canadians in these polls tell us they're not comfortable yet but my question back to them is well what will it take and is it simply a matter of time in other words, are you going to let somebody else go first? And if, if I'm the brave soul, I'm the canary in the coal mine that goes to the restaurant, has a lovely meal, and said, look, I'm still fine, I'm healthy, I haven't caught anything, is it, you need three weeks, five weeks, ten weeks of this. Um, but at some point, if you want to travel, you're going to have to get back on that plane. So what what is it going to take? I, we can't put plastic partitions between us all. Even wearing the masks is not uh, is not going to be everything. Uh, so I, that's the only thing I worry about. Right now, yes, confidence is low, but what is it going to take to get it back? Is it simply time? And unfortunately, because we are joined at the hip with the United States, I think the American experience is scaring us even more. The fear we're having is not based on the cases in Canada and the disease in Canada and how it's tracking in Canada. It is all about watching the Americans, and dare I say Donald Trump and his peculiar, continuing peculiar press conferences. I saw one the other day in which he blamed testing on Obama and Biden and what, why coronavirus testing has any connection to people who have been out of office for three years is beyond me. That, that doesn't give you any confidence as a Canadian. If we were on the other side of the planet, if we were in Australia and not joined at the hip, we might have a different feeling about this disease, but we're sitting beside the, the epicenter. This is clearly the worst outbreak of COVID anywhere in the world, and we're right beside it. Yeah, I, I saw that clip yesterday, too. I mean, there was no COVID-19 virus when the Obama administration was in play. Uh, but anyway, as I say, there's no sense in trying to add any legitimacy or try to find some legitimacy in some of the stuff that Trump says. But uh, you know, I, I went out last night to get uh, some takeout food. I said, pick it up at the, at the restaurant, the establishment. And they had a patio going there, which was pretty full. 
Uh, and people didn't seem to be very nervous about it at all. I mean, you know, they, obviously there wasn't a whole lot of social distancing going on. I didn't see any face masks. A couple of people had them, you know, and then sat down and took them off. Obviously, if you're going to have a drink, you have to do something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're getting there. And I think, with, and, you know, and I, I, I just asked the guy as he was getting my food for me. I said, well, how long have you been open here? I mean, the, the, you know, the, he says, it's been a, a few weeks now. And he says, everything seems to be just fine. I think we need to hear more of those stories before we have a, a, an increased comfort level. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and I think this is also where this online world we now live in, thanks to things like uh, Google and Yelp or what have you, people will be posting reviews and talking about their experiences. As long as the business is doing all that it can and is not uh, uh, flouting violations of social distancing, they're trying to do their part. And then if we do our part, we can get back to this. But unfortunately, Bill, I've also seen, and you may have seen this too, with mandatory masking coming, I've seen some lovely people in stores wearing masks that cover their mouth, but don't cover their nose. They're wearing them inappropriately. Or I've also seen them, once they leave the store, pull the mask off by grabbing the mask with their hands rather than going at the loops around their ears, which is the correct way to remove the mask. Uh, so, but even at that, because the disease has gotten to the point it has, the cases are so low. Canada's been reporting something like 200, 300 cases as a country per day over the last week or two. Really, the odds are that when you go out, you're not going to be exposed to the disease at all. So even with these mistakes, I don't think it's going to come roaring back. But look, I'm not a medical expert. I'm watching like everybody else. I don't want to see a second wave, but I also don't want to see us get so paralyzed that we can't go back to, to living our lives the way we really enjoy living. Well, and, and therein lies the problem. I mean, you know, let's face it, in the first few days when they started the shutdown here, I mean, you were afraid to touch anything because you figured could, the virus could be on there. Uh, I, I think I think we're over that seriousness of it, and that's not to belittle the virus at all. It would, it's it's a, it's a killer, and we know, understand that this has to be dealt with in a in a professional manner. And I, but we're doing that. And, and for those people that said, "Oh, come on, it was never as bad as, as these guys predicted," that's because we did what they told us to do. Uh, we did wear masks, we did social distancing, we did shut down for a while, and and that's why our numbers are a lot lower than the predictions were being. And I guess if we continue to do that, at least for the short term, anyway and those numbers continue to go down, uh, there will be a day, Marvin, where we can actually go to a movie theater and see the new James Bond movie and not have to wear a face mask. Bill, let me just do one other quick thing. I mentioned the economics of this. Uh, what I am worried about is, yes, the government, because it was novel, they took extraordinary measures, and they have spent $343 billion. $343 billion is the typical budget of our government for one year. So they basically doubled their spending in one year to deal with this. I understand it, and I do not blame them for it. I, we can handle a $1 trillion debt. We can handle all of this as a one-time event, but we cannot keep doing this year after year after year. So if, as we, this evolves, we've got to take more precautionary measures, I don't think we can go to the complete shutdown we had before. It may be targeted shutdowns. It may be targeted shutdowns in targeted areas. We know, for instance, that if we look at New Brunswick or Manitoba or Saskatchewan, the disease track is quite different there than it was in Toronto. Uh, it, it probably won't be a broad-based CERB uh, again in the future. It was fine because we didn't know what we were up against. Now that we know if there is some kind of a second wave, our response is going to have to be uh, targeted and, and more, more precise in what we're doing because we just can't afford another broad-based shutdown. Absolutely, absolutely, and I'm dying to go see football at Tim Horton Field, too, and like to see that happen at some point. Marvin, as always, thanks so much. Great conversation today. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon. Absolutely, Bill. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.